it's funny after the show last week, Thomas and I made this agreement that unless it was really urgent, we weren't going to talk a lot about current, uh, current events necessarily. If there were other things we wanted to talk about, we've been talking about indoctrination a lot, but sometimes we end up talking about the current events so much. We don't have much time to get there. And then of course, what happened was there was an assassination as everybody knows in Japan. And so we're going to talk about that. Uh, the reaction in China, which I think is incredibly relevant to, uh, our show tyranny today. And so, um, I see people are coming in now. Do you want to jump into this Thomas and talk about what happened in Japan and, and the reaction to China? Right. I will absolutely. But uh, can you just tell us a little bit about this new poster you have behind you? Oh, you mean that? Yes. I mean, the, the, the yellow and blue one is being replaced by <laughs> black and red. Yes, it has. Um, if you were here on, uh, Panamanarab versus Putin last week, uh, Ilya and I talked about the fact that, uh, it's really his book, which I've helped him get published here in the United States. It'll be out in about a month. Uh, it is a really fascinating, fascinating read. It's really. Well, as the subtitle says, I can't actually see it because the chat's in the way, but it's the story of how Russia becomes a democracy after they lose to Ukraine. And, uh, he delivers on that in really exactly the way you would expect if you've been watching the show and the show is Ponomonorov versus Putin. And if you haven't seen it, I'm actually going to stick a uh, link here to the show and you can sign up while you're watching us now and come see it tomorrow, it's every Thursday at 11. So at the same time, um, as this show with Thomas every week, there's a link. Uh, oh no. When Anna is having trouble with sound, we're in trouble because Anna's the most tech person I know. So Anna, did you try refresh? Um, anyway, uh, the book will be out in about a month. We're going to talk more about it tomorrow. I, I will just give you a sneak preview of what we're going to talk about tomorrow. And that is our goal with our friends at beams and everybody who joins your show, Thomas, and the show with Ilya is for us to band together. I didn't explain this very well last week, but we're going to band together. And if you're going to buy the book and we hope you do, first of all, there's going to be autographed copies for everybody who watches the show here. Uh, we're going to make sure that happens, but the goal is going to be to sell the books all on the same day. Yes, mine, I, it really is Ilya's book, Jasper. I helped, but it's really, it's really his book. Uh, our goal is to sell as many copies as we can on the same day. And this is going to be familiar to Thomas because he's watched this happen in real time. If we can get everyone who wants the book to buy it on the same day, we can push it into bestseller territory. And if we push the book into bestseller territory on one day, then it gets the rest of the world more aware of it because Amazon promotes it more and that generates more sales and more sales means more people are aware of what we're trying to do here, which is to make the world a better place in large part by bringing Russia into the rest of the world. So we'll talk more about that on the show tomorrow. Thank you for asking Thomas, but let's get to the, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, let's get to the topic of or topics of the day, starting with what happened in Japan last week. Yeah, so what happened and why it matters to us, right? Why it matters to right. what we're discussing here, which is uh, tyranny. Um, so Shinzo Abe, who was he? He was a prime minister in Japan twice for about a year, 2006 through seven or eight. 
And then he stepped down for health reasons and he came back and for eight years, he led Japan for a period, which we tend to kind of forget, but for Japan's allies in Europe and, uh, America, it was a particularly convulsive period. Think about, of course, the first war, Ukraine, Russia in Europe. Think about the refugee crisis a year later in Europe. Think about Brexit. Think about the uh, Trump's election and the divisiveness that it brought to American politics. And he steered Japan through all of this uh, very strongly, trying to do some reforms in, in Japan, economic reforms under the term abenomics, not least bringing women to the workforce. Let's not forget that Japanese women are as highly educated as Japanese men. But according to the old system, Oksan, a woman, a person at the back stays at home, takes care of the home, um, because they only graduated to join a Kaisha corporation, make some tea and find a husband. This is how it worked in the old corporate system. So he was trying to break that. Uh, he also led Japan through, uh, some reforms in energy systems. Remember it was a year after the Fukushima disaster. And I like Germany that basically genuflected in front of Putin to solve the problem. Uh, he tackled the problem in Japan from the side of demand reforms rather than just purely, uh, supply, um, stock market in Japan doubled during his tenure, you know, finally went back to this famous era of, uh, level of the, of the, uh, bubble era from late eighties. So it took him, you know, well over 25 years to get there. Um, and so generally extremely powerful continued to function after stepping down in 2020 as a head of the largest faction of Jiminto, the LDP, the, 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 the party in power that, uh, exercises power in a coalition. And this is, this is, this is important coalition with another party called Komeito, which is kind of a Buddhist junior partner controlled by a sect, modern lay sect, Sokagakka. And the problem with Sokagaka is that it's in the hands of a Chinese communist party. Mm. And so it blocks as a, as a Jiminto's part, partner, it blocks a constitutional reform. Constitutional reform that Shinzo Abe was trying to achieve, uh, relates to article nine of the constitution, which imposes sort of a peace agenda on the Japanese politics and society. Indeed, you know, after the, the, the end of militarism and the American occupation, Education in Japan fell in, in the hands of sort of a leftist groups that always existed, even through the militarist period. And so naturally, if you discuss foreign affairs with, with Japanese, especially those who are educated in the fifties and sixties and seventies, um, you know, you ask them about some problems and you get a blank response. Heiwa wa ichiban. Heiwa wa ichiban desu. Most important is peace. Okay. The, Morton for, the most important thing is peace, just peace. Peace number one literally means peace is number one. Well, let's not forget that there was a lot of peace under Stalin and it's important, especially for Ukrainians today to achieve just peace and not just peace at all costs. And so yeah. Abe was trying to change that. And of course that, that what, what, what that brings with itself was changing of the international position that Japan occupies. Uh, he had some strong allies abroad, not least in India, you know, on the same day, I think I mentioned this before, on the same day that Olaf Scholz had this groundbreaking speech at Bundestag, um, you know, the Zeit invented the change for Germany in terms of its relations with, with uh, Europe and the East and the world, its, its role as, as a military power and so on, uh, that announcement, Shinzo Abe held a very important speech. So first in this speech, he strongly supported Taiwan, which is, which is critical. 
because Taiwan will not survive without Japan's support. Yes. Uh, but he also mentioned that maybe it's time to review uh, the non-nuclear option for, for, for Japan. Not necessarily meaning that Japan will develop its own nukes, which it could perfectly do, but it would station American nukes. Now, India uh, reacted with uh, strong support for that, for, 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 for that statement by Shinzo Abe. By the way, he also very strongly worked towards a partnership with India economically, militarily, and politically as well uh, as both countries are, are facing Chinese, uh, uh, Chinese expansionism. So now we have this assassination, um, you know, uh, assassinations of this sort used to be commonplace in Japan during the Meiji era. So the, the period of modernization, late 19th and early 20th century, many famous uh, Japanese uh, politicians and generals were, were assassinated. Uh, Ito Hirobumi famously uh, was assassinated by, by a Korean nationalist. And, you know, there were some strong reasons, not least because Japan maintained the colonial empire in Asia. Uh, but it's very rare these days, as you know, you know, Japan is not like United States. People don't carry weapons at home. They don't, although this weapon was apparently made, handmade, I don't know, 3D made, we don't know yet. Um, and so, and so, uh, it's a very unusual event. There was an assassination of a mayor of Nagasaki some 15 years back by a Yakuza operative. We don't know exactly what the reasons for that were, but this, this, this is a really, a really, truly shocking event. And so as the, as the statements of, you know, grief and regret and mourning and, and support for Japan poured from around the world, one country stood out and that's People's Republic of China. Within minutes of that event, millions of Chinese went to their keyboards and spewed glee and joy uh, reacting to this event. Within hours, many restaurants, noodle shops, um, beer gardens opened up. Come and join us for free. Let's celebrate Shinzo Abe's death. Let's, we, we buy, you buy one, we give you three, two more for free mm. or, um, you know, 40% discount to celebrate for three days festivities, Shinzo Abe's death. Now, obviously this is all on internet, right? On WeChat in China. And we know the Chinese Communist Party, if they didn't like something, they could switch it off like yes. that. They didn't do it. Um, they didn't do it. This is a vent that's always allowed this nationalist vent. Uh, and it was particularly uh, striking because of the nationalistic education in China, about which we'll talk in a moment. Um, this happened on July 8th. July 7th is the anniversary of the so-called Marco Polo Bridge event, uh, which really marked the beginning of the Second Sino-Japanese War. And some people say it's the beginning of the Second World War, right? Because that afterwards during, during the Tokyo, Rome, Berlin axis. You can argue that Japanese wars in, in Asia were part of the broader world war event, although most people would point to September 1st, 39 in Germany's attack on Poland. Um, unless you're French in which you see 1940, right? Uh, or unless you're Russian, in which case you don't even talk about the time when Hitler and Stalin were allies, right? So, it's a great patriotic thing started in 1941 when Hitler betrayed Stalin. Um, Stalin was happily in bed with Hitler when Hitler was bombing London. Anyway, uh, so 
7th of July is that anniversary of the Marco Polo bridge event, which actually there is no, there's no agreement. There's no consensus among historians. If this was an, if it was an accident, an incident that then afterwards blew up, I mean, this was something that was prepared by the Japanese occupying forces, uh, in, in that area. Anyway, it led to the second war, which lasted until 1945 between, uh, nationalist China and, and Japan. Um, and so, because this event, this assassination happened just a day later on some of these banners saying yesterday was July 7th, today we finally won. Yes. Let's go, let's get drunk. And it's, you know, on our table, we'll, 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 we'll pay for this. Um, it, it shows what kind of society we're dealing with. Uh, dancing on a grave of a politician, you know, uh, it's, 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 it's a, it's a. You, you must need really special reasons. And yes, as your poster says, you know, behind you, we might have some special reasons for people who actually committed real crimes. Shinzo Abe never committed any crimes. His crime consists in the fact that his maternal grandfather, Nobusuke Kishi, was the prime minister of Japan as well after the war. He actually also survived an assassination attempt, mm. knifing and survived that. But before the war, he was, uh, one of the Japanese main hands in Manchuria. And he also signed the deal with the uh, Qing dynasty, the Manchus, uh, to, for Japan to control Taiwan in the late 19th century. So, uh, you know, he had some, some past Americans supported him against leftist forces after the war. And that's why he ended up in a position of prime minister, but whatever happened in Manchuria, you know, it doesn't really lay any blame on his uh, grandchild. Um, Shinzo Abe's brother, uh, Nobuo Kishi, so who took his family name after his mother, is currently foreign uh, minister in Japan. But uh, Jiminto won the election in some days, several days after the assassination, and there is a view that Kishida, the current prime minister, now can bifurcate, either continue Abe's um, path towards uh, constitutional amendment, this Article 9, and then put an imprint on his legacy for, for the rest of Japanese history, or he can remove Abe's allies, not least his brother from the government and other hardcore, um, you know, supporters of Taiwan, supporters of Ukraine, uh, and replace them with maybe with people who are more amenable to Komeito and Sokagakkai and Chinese Communist Party's influences in Japan, which would be very dangerous for Japan would be very dangerous for America. And we'll see how it evolves. In, <clears throat> excuse me, given that choice by the prime minister, what would the Japanese people prefer? So funny, the last, uh, the last, uh, large poll that I saw on that was about two years, three years ago, and the society was divided perfectly into three groups. Those who say we should absolutely change. Those who said, no, 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 we shouldn't because hey, wawa, ichiban. <laughs> and then the third one is, oh, you know, we don't know. Mm. And we understand. Yeah. Putin's invasion. So first, first, uh, the, 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 the breach by the Chinese of the Hong Kong agreement with UK, right. Mm. Uh, then the wolf warrior diplomacy by, by China. Then, uh, Putin's second war in Ukraine ongoing China's support, rhetorical support and trade support, by the way, 
I just saw today the numbers, Chinese trade with Russia, now, despite all the sanctions, someone has increased 27% year on year mm -hmm. in the first half of this year, 27%. So that, and of course, now we see Iran stepping up to the plate as well, uh, potentially selling UAVs or drones to, to, to Russia. So that axis of evil to use Bush the second's terminology is something that Japanese are very much aware of. And I think if the poll was run today, uh, the, the, the division will be much clearer than the 30, 30, 30. I think the middle third would have shrunken probably, but we have to, we have to wait and see. I don't know exactly what, what the middle have. third, the middle third shrunk undecided. Do you think? Sorry? I think it will shrink. I think it and split shrink. so that some, some close to equal amount went both ways. So look, Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, and Singapore are the four countries in East Asia that have supported sanctions. The society is at least from, you know, from what I get from, from rank and file, normal people in Japan is, is absolutely devastated by what's happening to Ukraine, uh, and realizes that there is no other way, but to simply step up to the plate and reinforce Japanese defensive systems. And for that, the constitution has to be amended, but mm. this is just anecdotal evidence from what I get from, you know, several people. I don't have the statistical, uh, means to, to measure this right now. All right, so let's move from what happened to Japan to the reaction in China and use that to open the larger topic of indoctrination, because my guess is indoctrination was at the heart of what we saw in China after the assassination. Yeah, it's a perfect segue, really. And I think that we can, we can look at four examples, four, four uh, state entities that have perfected that and that allow, in this case, in China last week, millions of people to react like robots, you know, mm -hmm. no morality, perfect predictability. You know, artificial intelligence has a problem with one thing. It can apparently start detecting emotions and feeling emotions, but morality is not one of them because morality yes. is very paradoxical. Such as, well, you know, generosity. It's not something that logically would make sense. So I'm not sure how you actually put it in, in binary code. So let me ask, let me ask you a question. In terms of how the people in China reacted, was it really spontaneous or was there some act by an official or an unofficial but powerful group or lobby that planted the seed? Oh. We should be celebrating this. Here are ways to celebrate it. I mean, one is grassroots and organic and the other is, is not. Yeah. It's a very useful distinction in our societies, not in those societies. Cause of course I can only speculate. I haven't seen the memo from Chinese communist party. It was surprising that within really, you know, three quarters, an hour of the news, there were those banners hanging around the restaurants. Well, well I mean, it takes a while to get things printed at, at FedEx. Less, I don't know, but yeah. this is why, here's why the distinction between top down and bottom up is misleading in the case of, of, of a, of a zombie society. Why is there indoctrination from, you know, a child up? from very early stage up. Well, mm -hmm. predominantly for those who indoctrinate to stay in power and in times of crisis to mobilize this force. Yes. 
immobilized sometimes to lethal effect, right? Because what you're doing in this point first, you delete any force of argumentation. You you completely you 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 completely wipe out the human need to parse the truth from yes. There's only one way and one way to to think if you can actually call it thinking. So let me let me just illustrate this with the with the most notorious example, which is in Nazi Germany, and then we come to China and eventually to Soviet Union and Russia. So what were the main tenets in, in Nazi Germany and how? So first, what and then how they were uh, uh, instilled in, in young people. Um, the first one was the love of the motherland. That's the first thing you do. Love of the motherland, Vaterland in German, so fatherland actually. Yes. Um, that is the number one objective. So remember a couple of weeks ago when I gave you an example of an ex-Chinese colleague who wept by watching yes. news of a, of, of, of a, a heckled uh, head of the Chinese Communist Party? That's when you actually, the, 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 the indoctrinating party in this case, NSDAP in Nazi Germany is trying to get to the limbic brain to force people to actually feel a strong emotion, strong positive emotion towards this case, the nation, right? The nation, number one, and interestingly enough, in Nazi case, number two, nature. And then, of course, for us, you know, since 1980s, we've been kind of cohabitating with the, with the green movement. So we believe that nature in politics, somewhere on the left of the political spectrum, but that's not how traditionally it was seen. You have to go back to Machiavelli. Machiavelli actually saw nature as opposed to culture as fully legitimate because of its clear distinction between the wolf and the sheep. Mm -hmm. You have to decide, are you with the wolves or are you with the sheep, right? Very clear. Nature is superior to culture. And so uh, this is how the Nazis view this nature, Blut und Boden, blood and soil. This is how important it is. A couple of years ago, I was in France and for some festival on the way back. I was coming back with one musician who complained that in her family, there were some extreme right-wingers from like the extreme anti-immigration uh, groups and that she couldn't communicate with them anymore. And she brought really this interesting element of dedication to nature on the far right through purity, la pureté du corps, the purity of my body. I'm only taking purely organic here, made here in my, my little backyard. I'm not importing anything like those globalist ones. Mm -hmm. And I don't want any immigrants here, those dirty ones who come from somewhere else. We are the purity. Our nation is natural. We are natural. And this is how the, the, the extreme right wing sees nature. So within that collectivity, very well defined what's nature, because the second theme in Nazi Germany was the community, the service to the community, because community is not something you choose. You're thrown into this when you're born in a certain society. This thrown is the term that Heidegger used, give off and hide. So you basically, not out of your choice, you find yourself in certain environments, yes. but in indoctrination, you find that this is a natural state. You're in a natural state of community. The third theme that the Nazis developed was eugenics, genetics, huge interest in race, right? How pure we are, really? not, not now, but forever, you know, from those Aryans in the North, the Nordic race and so on. And actually, interesting, eugenics was not unique to Nazis. It started in the 19th century as a lot of Western nations became more acquainted with the other, the other in Africa and Asia and elsewhere, 
through colonialism uh, predominantly, and then they spotted differences, which they identified as Western superiority yeah. in terms of science or medicine or architecture, or political organization, music, you know, whatever, you know? And so they were trying to figure out why this is the case, this, in their view, superiority and eugenics. So the view that there's something biological about it, uh, gained a lot of traction, not least because Darwinism, you know, this is just flourished in 19th yeah. century. Um, but of course, Dar Darwinism, you know, genetically they're over a long period of time, biologically, there are certain changes here. They borrowed from social Darwinism, Herbert Spencer, where within a society, politics are and an economy, uh, you know, the survival of the fittest, this is what really matters. So the, the, the best and the strongest by nature wins, right? Which is, which kind of, in fact, a lot of conservative, uh, viewpoints, not least here in America. So there are some leftist writers who say the Nazis actually borrowed it for, all from America. That's not quite true. Uh, there was, there, there, there were those tendencies towards eugenics and interest in genetics. Uh, in, in politics in many, many countries, many colonial countries, although also in America, you know, yeah. famous medicine grant, you know, and the, you know, the movement against immigration and the changes to immigration policy in 1920s and so on. So we have, we have our own history as well. And the fourth theme was history and history understood as history of conflict or war is actually good. So, you know, we just discussed a moment ago, you know, peace versus just peace, right? Well, there is a concept of just war, not least in Christianity, right? So, but here by definition, who defines that, you know, what, which war is good? Well, the Nazi Germany part, German party defines that. So interesting enough, this was only teaching of German history and, and, and this is how it worked in your education. So to bolster the educational uh, tools, uh, the Nazis actually created two organizations for young people. The, for, for the youngest, it was called Deutsches Jungvolk. So the young nation of German people say, and that started from the age of about 10 to 13. And these were like scouts. Uh, so, you know, a lot of rallies and parades and roll calls and singing and sports events and saluting camps and so on. Designed to suck you in. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a large. It's, it's a large mobilization. It's many people at the same time, your age mates, boys separate from girls, of course, and so on, and, you know, purity and nation. And we, by the way, the traditional scouts, so Baden Powell's scouts that already existed for, you know, 30 years by the time, um, the Nazis came to power were outlawed in Germany in 1934, because there was a potential competition to this. Mm. And once you graduated from young folk by simply nature of your age, you joined Hitler Jugend, the Hitler youth. Uh, which was from 14 to 18 years of age. And so famously both members of Jungvolk and Hitler Jugend in the latter part of the second world war actually participated in defensive operations in Germany. There was even a, a tank battalion of Hitler Jugend, which is a, a separate story. So a very strong, you know, and, and I just, I want to jump in here for a sec. There was a similar model in the USSR. Yeah, I'll talk about it in a moment. Yeah, okay. we'll, we'll come to USSR and okay. Russia because actually all of these models are, are 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 very similar. So let me jump now to communist China, because Jungvolk and Hitler Jugend were actually created much or ma, many years before NSDAP came to power. So in the early 1920s, between 1922 and 26, I don't remember which one which, 
Uh, at the same time, the Chinese Communist Party, which was founded in 1921, created its own organization. But before I get to the Chinese organizations, which matter, because unlike Hitler, Jugend, and Jungfolk, they still exist. Yes. Um, let me go through some comparison of what the tenets are that are instilled on young Chinese people in comparison to those Nazi ones. So let me start first with love. So who do you love in China? My country. Mm. First, my leader, dear leader, Chinese Communist Party is number one. So it used to be obey Chinese Communist Party, but at least since, since Xi Jinping came to power, it's loving Chinese mm. Communist Party. That's number one. Mm. The second thing you love is the nation. So Zhonghua Minzu, which is a term actually only concocted by nationalists some hundred, ten years ago. Um, and, and so, and the third one is nature. Again, nature appears, right? So, so, but. So emotionally, but also morally, physically, and um, artistically, you have to be attuned with those three, three elements. What about genetics? And this is really interesting. In 1920s, uh, Swedish and Austrian archeologists discovered Homo erectus pekinensis. So uh, Homo erectus, so a sort of earlier version of, of uh, humanoid. Uh, not far away from Beijing, mm -hmm. and uh, that sort of lent itself to a theory of polygenesis that we're not all out of Africa because we Chinese, we're different. We actually came from here. Yeah. <laughs> Which helps, of course, with the racist ideology in China. You know, we we're better. We're better. We better. We're not like those white people who all came from those dirty Africans. We actually separate. And so, um, to some extent, the ideology of ideology of Han identity also concocted only 110 years ago by the nationalists to just mobilize the society against the, you know, the Manchu overlords of the Qing dynasty. Uh, that of course fed into this idea of uniqueness. You know, we've been here for 230,000 years or 780,000 years or whatever the thousands are, right? So, so that's, that's another element. And then the third one, remember, we spoke about history, and this is again, just Chinese history and the most important, um, element here is of course, national reunification, read Taiwan, maybe Manjuria, the Russian Manjuria, or, you know, maybe the stands, whatever it is going to be the next, the next step, right? So very important element and to push these forward. Um, first there is the educational system. So in the educational system, um, surveillance cameras were introduced, I think in 2013 at schools, right? So that's number one. Number two, a bit, about a year later, uh, children were officially encouraged to rat on each other. Hmm. So that's famous, for example, in Xinjiang, if you know, you don't like your, 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 your classmate, but classmate told you that mother is, you know, reading Quran for him. You're going to rat. And of course the classmate will disappear. And so his mother is the situation East Turkestan, right? Then they try to, uh, impose the sort of like, um, uh, brainwave, uh, cameras <laughs> that, that didn't really flow very well. There are some Aurelian pictures from Chinese schools. And now of course you have a social credit system, but beyond that, you have organizations, again, two organizations in China, the organization for very young people, it's called, um, so these are Shao Xindui. Okay. 
So they get together, they sing, they sing to the glory of the Chinese Communist Party. And, but they start much earlier, the Jungfolk in Nazi Germany at the age of six. So from six to 14, you're a member of that, of that organization. And then when you're 14, you graduate to the next one, which is the Chinese Communist League. So uh, that's Gongchang, Zhou Qingyan, Tuan. And it's interestingly enough, it's a total cult of a Russian organization that doesn't exist anymore from Soviet times, which was, which was Komunistichiski Soyuz Moazioz. So, uh, Communist Youth League, that's what it is. This is, by the way, uh, a, uh, a necktie mm. of mm. the Communist Youth of China, where I worked for many years. And, um, just to clarify, you worked in China, not as part of the conflict, but this is the gifts you get from your, uh, uh, co-workers, by the way, um, why is it so important? Because within the Chinese communist party, since that you last in this organization until 28 and you naturally then continue over to the Chinese communist party, um, there are factions within Chinese communist party and within this, among those factions, there's also Chinese communist youth league factions. Hu Jintao, the former president, was a member of that of that faction, as was Hu Yaobang uh, in the late uh, 80s, although these two factions were not directly related. But right now, they've been all crushed by Xi Jinping and his, his principles. Um, so so it's a, it also, uh, um, you know, plays a very, very important role in terms of mobilization of the, of, of, of the, of the youth currently. The Chinese Communist League has 81 million members, 81 million members. So we only know about 2 million tweets or it's actually on WeChat, so it's not really tweets. Um, so, you know, how many of them went through the ranks of that? You know, there are many more, there are many, more. but now think about one element that's missing, important element of social organization that's missing both from the Nazi and the and the Chinese um, uh, examples. What is this? We have identity, we have history and politics. What is missing there? That's really important for the welfare of a society. Religion? Well, of course, religion is a no-no. <laughs> you know, if you, we're gonna talk a, a moment about Komsomol in, in, in Soviet Union, um, young people were encouraged to combat three sins which is vodka, cigarettes, and religion, right? So not, not religion. No, what's missing is economy. Remember Clinton? I was going to say money or religion. So. Right, exactly. There's nothing about the economy. Economy, economic growth is the only source of legitimacy for the party to stay in power. It's not an end in itself. And I have a great quote. Let me just read you the quote. Um, the nation doesn't live for the economy for economic leaders or for economic or financial theorists. On the contrary, it is finance and the economy, economic leaders and theorists, which all owe unqualified service in this struggle for the self-assertion of our nation. So guess who said that? I'm gonna guess it wasn't AOC. No, it wasn't. It was Adolf Hitler in 1936. Uh, this was a memo for the four-year plan. So the Nazis, just like communists, have those plans, right? Five-year yes. plans. So when you hear yeah. always from China about another plan. So he said that, and it's very important. It's very important, I think, for Wall Street to understand 
that the economy, it's not really the main driver, stupid. Um, you know, yes, of course, Hitler built fantastic Autobahn and, you know, Chinese Communist Party facilitated a system that allowed them to build high-speed rail uh, from pilfered German technology, but that's not an end in itself. Okay. So we touched upon the fact that the Chinese Communist Youth was, in its name at least, completely copied from, from the um, Soviet Komsomol. So Komsomol, uh, so Komunistichesky Sayuz Mahazioji, so it's like a, it's, it's, it's not an acronym, but it's a cluster of uh, three um, syllables. Right now, what survives in current Russia is only Komsomolskaya Pravda, which was the organ, the, the magazine of Komsomol. These days, it's a tabloid that will try to prove that Boris Nemtsov maybe committed suicide by shooting himself at the back, something like that. Um, but there is no Komsomol as such anymore, which was a problem for Putin. I'll come back to this in a moment. Um, so Komsomol, why Soviets obsessed about it? Komsomol is the oldest, 1918. Obsessed about it because the scouts, so Baden-Powell's type scouts, were fighting with the white army against the, the red army during the revolution, the Bolshevik revolution. So they were also outlawed in Soviet uh, Russia and then Soviet Union as they are outlawed today in uh, communist China. Uh, and so they created this organization. So the Komsomol were also from 14 to, to 28. Below that level for younger kids, uh, nine to 14, they were uh, pioneers, so pioneers, let's say. So it was Sierstoyuznaya Pionierskaya Organizacja imienia Lenina. So named after Lenin. It's so important because, you know, pioneers, uh, they had a lot of camps. The most famous camp was in Artek, which is in Crimea, occupied Crimea. And this camp was world known, you know, even, even leaders of nations, Nehru, Gandhi, Ben Bella, um, you know, they traveled their famous, you know, Russians, Gagarin, you know, they traveled there and met with the youth which was mostly Soviet youth and also invited communist pioneers from, you know, Cuba or Bulgaria and somewhere else. So Artek was really a big deal. I remember hearing about it, you know, in my, in my childhood. So if you were invited to Artek, this was really fantastic. Um, you know, there, there was one famous, uh, American peacenik, a young girl, Samantha Smith, uh, in Reagan times, she wrote a letter to Andropov and she was actually invited to. To yeah. Arctic as well. Now, because Crimea is occupied right now, Ukraine, independent Ukraine, was trying to continue this tradition without the ideology in the Carpathian Mountains to create other you know, Carpathian Arctic. But uh, for all I know, the neo-fascist youth, Russian youth, is now also meeting in in the real Arctic in Crimea. When so, but uh, unlike the Chinese and the Germans, the Soviets also had a child, child, a small child organization called Aktsiabriata. Ribiata in Russian is a plural for kids or boys or kids. Um, and so Aktsiab is October. So because of October revolution, they clustered this together. So kids of October revolution, and you could wear like a little, little, um, uh, yes. star, the star is still a little pain. So normally the pin. You know, with one of the most important uh, medals that you got in Soviet Union had, you know, bold Lenin as we know it, uh, but that pin had uh, a picture of Lenin as a child. Mm. And so, uh, and then you could get other little medals and I have one of those. Uh, this is, this is. Hold it, hold it, steel for a, just hold it, stop moving for a minute. 
just hold it still so that your camera can focus on it. There you go. Uh, I want to mention that all of these organizations play roles to, to one degree or another in Ilya's book. I mean, I've been reading a lot about, uh, you know, the pioneers, which you didn't exactly translate, Octoberists. I mean, he grew up in the Soviet Union. So it's, it's an interesting part of the book, he, how his young years and exposure and participation in these organizations helped him make who he is today and, and what he's working for. Yeah. And, you know, it's really important. Uh, I think I saw an interview of Khodorkovsky right now, the, the former Yukos uh, chairman who was then in Gulag for 10 years, now lives in London. And he has some ideas, just like Ilya, about the uh, yes. culture. It would be interesting to confront them. Um, no, I don't think, it, I don't think it's that difficult. They're very close friends as you yeah. also. So there was a picture of Khodorkovsky also in a pioneer, um, uh, <laughs> you know, from his childhood, which is really, really, really cute. Yeah. He is for people that don't know, was at one point the richest man in Russia. Forbes said he was the 16th richest man in the world. His company was Yukos, the oil and gas company. Ilya worked for him and considered him his mentor. Um, and he spent. 10 years in a Russian prison. So he was, I guess you would say kind of an anti-oligarch because instead yeah. of profiting, he, he was sent away for 10 years. Yeah. That's, That's a pretty true. high. Well, then, then it's because of also oh, the term oligarch means something very different in Putin's Russia and in Yeltsin's Russia. Right. So mm -hmm. well, we can discuss it. I'm sure Ilya can cover this if you, if you yeah. stop it. So let me just now move forward from the Soviet times to Russia today. Well, let me, let me ask you a question. We can either continue this now and we're, we're a bit over time or okay. pick it up next week. What do you think Let's is good? Let's pick it okay. up next week. Yeah. Okay. We've teased this well, we've teed it up and teased it well for next week. Uh, I want to thank everybody for being here, Thomas. I want to thank you. We'll continue this conversation next week and let's hope there's no events in the world that we have to talk about because they're urgent next week. You know, that was our goal last week. We didn't obviously foresee an assassination. And one of the things I want to ask you next week about the assassination, um, it almost from your description of the reaction in China with the banners and the sales and everything, it's almost as if things were prepared in advance. And I guess one of the questions I'll ask you next week is, could the assassin have been a bit of like an Oswald? Could it have been set up from above? And I don't answer now. Let's, let's leave it until next week. And we may know more next week. Mm -hmm. 